Well, do keep your Bible open uh, at that page, and we'll be looking at this section we've just read and transgressing into the next chapter uh, briefly uh, this evening. And it seems as if sometimes you just cannot say the right thing, and Paul's experiencing that at this stage in his life. No matter how many opportunities he has to address a mob on one hand, Uh, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Judaism on the other, and the Roman governor, it seems as if whatever he says is the wrong thing. And uh, so far his words have provoked a riot. Uh, They have provoked the council into having him struck in the face by by order of of the judge, the high priest. And now he is under guard by the Romans. And it was while he was under guard by the Romans, if you open, turn the page to verse 11 of, this, of chapter 23, it was while he was in prison during the night that the Lord Jesus appeared to him and told him to take courage and predicted that he would, in fact, in spite of everything else that was happening to him, testify to the gospel in Rome. The Lord Jesus came to him where he was. The good principle there that Jesus comes to us where we are. There was once a Quaker who visited John Bunyan in prison in the 17th century. The 17th century is when John Bunyan was in prison, by the way, and it was a 17th century Quaker that visited him in prison, just in case you thought there was some time travel involved there. The Quaker visited John Bunyan in prison when he was in prison in the 17th century. I'm sure I've not made that clear enough to you, so I'll repeat it. And uh, he told Bunyan... He told Bunyan that he had gone over all of Europe. The Lord had told him to come and visit him, and he had gone over all of Europe looking for the prison that he was in. And Bunyan's response was to say, well, if the Lord sent you, he would have told you where I was because he's known where I've been all this time. The Lord knows where Paul is. The Lord knows where Bunyan was. The Lord knows where you are. And the Lord comes to Paul In verse 11, he comes to Paul in prison to reassure him that he's in the will of God. Well, you would think being in jail would be a pretty safe place to be, you would think. But the Lord's encouragement is immediately followed by this report of a plot against the life of Paul. Now, this kind of thing happens in the book of Acts. Whenever the Lord appears to somebody and gives them some reassuring words... Almost invariably, the next thing that happens is a bad thing happens. I don't don't want to kind of draw a a line there, but we know that, for example, when Corinth, when when, uh, Paul was in Corinth, the Lord Jesus came by night to encourage the people there to speak fearlessly and also promised to preserve them for the sake of many people that he had in that city. And the very next day, the Jews take legal action against Paul. Now in Jerusalem, the Lord appears to Paul one night and the next day there's a plot against him. There's a bit of a connection going on there. Well, apparently there were 40 people implicated in this plot and they went to the high priest who was a Sadducee. Sadducees were sad, you see. And the reason they were Sadducees is because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in supernatural things. They didn't believe that there was anything beyond the materialistic world in which they lived. And uh, 
the plotters bypassed the Pharisees who had actually agreed with Paul that there was a resurrection from the dead and so therefore there was a bit of competition going on there within the Sanhedrin. So they went straight to the materialists and the, and the cynics, the Sadducees, and persuaded them without too much trouble, I have to say, to join with them in this plot to get Paul. It was quite a straightforward kind of plot. They would ask for another hearing. The Sanhedrin would ask for another hearing from the apostle in the precincts of the temple. The temple was just across a little bridge from the fortress of Antonia. So they would lead the prisoner. He'd have his little security detail that would go with him. and They'd lead him across that bridge into the temple precincts. And en route, there would be plotters ready to kill Paul outright. That was a simple, simple hit job that was being plotted by the schemers. And the Sanhedrin went along with it. The religious leaders, Ananias, who was a high priest, who had a bad reputation for doing this kind of thing, and was once recalled to Rome because he was implicated in something similar. He had, he had ambushed some Samaritan pilgrim somewhere. Uh, Ananias is all up for this, this plot. And there's a lesson there. The lesson, I think, is that religion doesn't always feel itself obliged to follow strict morality. We see it with the Sanhedrin here. Sadly, we have seen it from time to time in the history of Christianity. And we certainly see it in other religions, which will remain nameless, like Islam. There are other religions that feel that they don't have to follow strict morality. And the rebuke, the rebuke, I think, that we need to apply here is that when Christians do this, they are not following the Lord Jesus' instructions. Other religions may, in fact, be following their religion when they do it, and in fact, may even believe in deception, uh, deceiving people in order to uh, obtain their aims. But in Christianity, we're not allowed to do that. We're not allowed to use violence. Well, that's the background. And it's against that background that we find the story unfolding that we read this evening. We discover something about Paul's personal life, something you didn't know. Did you ever know that Paul had a sister? You never think about Paul actually as a human being. You think somehow or other he just kind of appears on the scene out of the blue and that he's some kind of super kind of guy. And yet here we discover that he comes from a normal family and he has a sister and he has a nephew, partly, and he's in good terms with his sister and his nephew because his nephew is the one who discovers the plot. We also discover that the Romans were giving him a lot of leeway. He was, in fact, a Roman citizen, which meant probably that he had a higher social status than the guards who were looking after him in the prison, and they were allowing the family to visit him. So he goes to Paul. He tells Paul the plot. Paul sends him to the tribune, and he goes and meets the tribune. He takes him aside, hears the story, and says, we'll see about that. And Then there's this great story as it unfolds, whereby the tribune decides that he's going to send Paul away out of Jerusalem uh, with guards to protect him. What is amazing is, you notice the list of people that he sends with Paul. This is all to protect one man, Four, 200 infantry, 70 mounted soldiers, 
and 200 archers, 470 troops. There only were 600 troops in Jerusalem. And he's sending all of these men to protect Paul and to de deliver Paul safely to the center of Roman power there uh, where Felix was. So in the space of two chapters, we found the Pharisees finding no fault in parts of Paul's theology. We found the Sadducees uh, charging him with blasphemy. And we found a Gentile official, a Roman official, finding the accusations against Paul having no legal basis, certainly for any severe penalties. He says that in the letter that he writes to the governor, Felix. Now let me tell you a bit about this man, Felix. He's an interesting character, Marcus Antonius Felix. You would never have heard about him if it hadn't been for Paul, jumping, uh, running into him in this background. Uh, what happens in, this, in the chapter here is that Paul is being given, in effect, a pre-trial hearing. Uh, he has already tried to defend himself before a Jewish mob. He's gone before a formal hearing of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And now he's been taken from Jerusalem because of the plot to kill him. And he's now in Caesarea Philippi, which was the military headquarters of the Roman Empire in the region. And Marcus Antonius Felix is the governor of the area. Now, I want you to turn with me to four, chapter 24. Here we're going to run through 24 very quickly. Because there we see the prosecution of Paul. And in the prosecution, we find it made up principally of the Sadducees rather than the Pharisees. The Sadducees, as I said, don't believe in resurrection, don't believe in supernatural. And they've hired a lawyer called Tertullus. You can see that in verse 1. Only five days after, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, that's a, that's a Latin name. He's probably a Roman. Very cleverly, they've hired a Roman lawyer to deal with Roman law uh, on their behalf. It probably costs a lot of money, this lawyer, being a Roman lawyer. Uh, and they're using this in order to prosecute the case against Paul. The trial in chapter 24 forms the, takes the, the form of a normal Roman trial. There's a pre-trial hearing. Then the accuser is brought out and makes their charge in front of the accused who remains silent. And then only after the charges have been fully made is the accused allowed to speak in his defense. And then ultimately the judge will give the verdict. Well, I want you to notice the outworking of the, the court case. Look at, look at verse 3 of chapter, uh, 2 rather, of, of chapter uh, 24. Most excellent Felix. Here's a lawyer at work here, buttering up the judge. Reforms are being made for this nation. You're, you're a great reformer. You're, you're a great guy. You've done so much for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. He's speaking on behalf of his uh, the, Sad, the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. And we don't want to put you under any pressure, verse 4. We don't want to detain you any further. We don't want to spend a long time on this. We think this is a simple case. We think it's cut and dried. We beg your kindness to hear us briefly, briefly, because we've found this man a plague. It's quite simple. 
we found this man stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. So we're not overdoing it here. We're not over-egging the pudding, as they say in England. And I don't know what that means, but they say it there anyway. But we're not overstating the case. You know, he's just causing riots all over the world. Wherever he goes, he causes riots. This man, Paul. And he belongs to this sect. So... He's, he's making a case. What is he arguing? He's saying that Paul is, first of all, a political menace. He's a plague who stirs up trouble, who causes civil and riotous unrest, not just in Jerusalem, but according to Tertullus, throughout the whole world, throughout the empire. That was something that, of course, would be a concern to the Romans. Secondly, they're saying about him that he is a religious heretic. Not only is he a disturber of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, the peace of the empire, but he is the leader of a sect outside of the, uh, the legal religions that were permitted, the special laws given to Judaism, for example, that tolerated it within the empire. He was a political men menace. He was a heretic, which was a criminal offense under Roman law. And then the third charge that he makes is that Paul had desecrated the temple. He had desecrated the temple. In verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So he's making these charges, all of which were wrong. The, last, uh, the, the first one about stirring up trouble, of course, Paul hadn't stirred up the trouble. It was the mob who did. As far as uh, desecrating the temple was concerned, that was a lie. We know because he'd gone out of his way to make sure that he followed strictly the Mosaic law. He had not taken any Gentile into the temple precincts, as they had said. And he's strictly trying to keep the law. So Felix, actually, in his response, and to give him credit, uh, Felix is uh, not too impressed by what has been said. And uh, if you look at verse 10, you'll notice that Luke is obviously at present at this trial. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. Is a, a first-hand notice of how it worked. And then Paul launches into his defense from verse 10. And... Uh, what it raises is this question. What do you do when you're falsely accused? Do you just keep silent? Do you hope somebody else will speak up for you? I mean, there are times, aren't there, in life where you think that's the thing to do. Christians should turn the other cheek. You should, you should just let it all fall out. You shouldn't stand up for yourself. You should just let everybody kick you around. You should never say what you really believe or what really happened. You must never speak strongly in your own defense. Is that, is that what is expected? Here is Paul, he's in a legal context, and he uses the legal options open to him. He takes the opportunity granted legally by the state to speak in his own defense, and he does so strongly. It was appropriate for Paul to defend himself. He tells them that he's only, he was only in Jerusalem for 12 days, Five of those days he was in prison in Caesarea. And then two other days he'd been held captive in Jerusalem. He hardly had enough time to stir up riots throughout the whole known world. 
So he's, he's laying it on the line. He, he tells the truth. He even admits, as you read it, he even admits that in fact they may have a point. They may have a point in one of their charges. Verse 14. This I confess to you, he says, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul is witnessing to the truth. He is stating the truth. He is prepared to say, say they nearly have a point here. They are charging me of belonging to the sect of the Nazarenes. Let me clarify what that is. That sect, he says, actually believes everything they believe. Believes their law. Believes what some of them, more than some of them believe based on their law. He states the truth. Not only does he state the truth, you notice verse 16. He says this, I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Here he is talking to the governor. He's talking to the ruler. He's talking to the king of that area. And he talks to him about conscience. He is saying to the king, it's a very awesome thing to speak before you, Governor Felix. It is an awesome thing to stand before the representative of the Roman Empire. But you need to know that it's even more awesome to me because I realize that I am speaking as I stand in the presence of the judge, of the ultimate judge. I am standing in the presence of Almighty God. And he is conscious of this, that he stands before a greater judge than Felix. And then he says, he makes it very clear, a basis on which that he speaks. He speaks as one who is a citizen of Rome. He claims his earthly citizenship, his legal right to appeal. And it is before, because he had cried out that he was a Roman citizen that he finds himself standing in the presence of the judge at this time. And that, this is a very important thing. Do you know what Paul is doing when he says that he is a citizen of Rome? He's doing something which would be echoed in history about 150 years later when one of the early church leaders called Tertullian, uh, who was one of the great North African church fathers, was giving a similar defense in a treatise that he wrote against the accusation that the church was a menace and a threat and a sect and ought to be obliterated. And Tertullian, as he's writing his defense of Christianity, says to the emperor of Rome, if you want to find a good citizen, then you will find them among the followers of Jesus Christ. Isn't that an astounding thing? Here is Paul saying similar things to Felix. Here is Tertullian saying it to the emperor. It's an astonishing thing that 200 or so years later, Tertullian could say what Paul is saying here, that Christians are the very best of citizens. They are not troublemakers. They don't cause riots. Actually, the writing of the Apostle Paul is filled with respect for the higher powers. Whether they're good or bad men is immaterial. The powers that be are ordained of God. 
whether they're clever men or not clever men, the powers that be are ordained of God, whether you know better than they do, and you probably do, the powers that be are ordained of God, and we're to give honor to whom honor is due. Paul says all of that. He says we're to pray for the powers that be. We should never in church offer a pastoral prayer where we don't pray for the powers that be because it's one of the few things that has been commanded that we do, that we pray for our nation and that we pray for those who, re who rule over us. What the apostle is doing here is an important thing. It's an important thing because we need to say it in our day. Because we find ourselves not in as bad a situation as Paul did, but we find ourselves in a situation today in which the media and some people in government are determined to paint Christians in colors that we don't deserve. To blame, as it were, Christianity for every problem that emerges. And to give, in a sense, a nod to other religions whose basic premises are inimical to the public good. And what we have to say to the powers that be is the same as what Paul said and Tertullian said. We are to say to the powers that be, you want to see good citizens. We do not go on strike and cause disruption to the economy of the nation. We do not play around with our taxes, but we are committed to making proper returns when we, when we put our tax return at the end of the year. We are committed to voting in elections. We are committed to praying for and supporting the government of the land. We are not usurpers of the common good. We do not fly planes into high buildings. We do not blow other people up with bomb vests. We don't do that stuff. We are good citizens. And one of the reasons you can walk all over us is we don't tell you that often enough. One of the reasons you feel that you can, you can misrepresent us and malign us is we quietly go about our business. Because we want to live at peace with everybody and we want to live a peaceable life that gives glory to God. Here's Paul saying to the authorities. Tertullian later says to the authorities. Christian people make good citizens, loyal subjects, honest servants of the state. Paul teaches that lesson in the way in which he addresses Felix in this defense as a Roman citizen before his judge. But not only does he do that in his practice, he does something else in his practice. He focuses on the Lord Jesus. Uh, he mentions it in verse 21 and again in verse 25. He, he says in verse 21, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. In verse 25, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, coming judgment, he, he's talking to this man and he's pointing to Jesus. He's pointing to Christ alone, everlasting life alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. Here is a man who lives for one thing. He lives for Jesus. No matter where he is, no matter who he's talking to, no matter whether he's bound or free, whether he's in the dark, in, uh, in chains, or whether he's out on the streets, 
whether he's on a missionary campaign or whether he's in defense of, on trial for his life, he cannot help himself. He cannot stop himself. He must talk about Jesus. Jesus bursts out of his inner being. He is captivated by Jesus. And he is captivated by the resurrection of Jesus. It is the fact that Jesus is alive from the dead. Paul keeps bringing it up again and again and again. Now, by the way, he is attacking his accusers. They don't believe in resurrection, even though their scriptures teach it. They don't believe in resurrection from the dead. And he challenges that. He says, listen, go back to your own scriptures. Read your own scriptures. It's because of resurrection that I'm on trial today before the Sanhedrin. God has raised Jesus from the dead. And what does the resurrection do? The resurrection validates everything that Jesus said. Validates everything that Jesus accomplished. The resurrection is God's amen to Jesus' word on the cross. Finished. Jesus cries out, it's done, it's done, it's accomplished. God says on the first day of the week, amen to that. And Jesus rises from the grave. It is God's validation of all that Jesus has done. And you see, for the Apostle Paul, as he stood before the king, he is saying to this man, he is saying to this man, the resurrected Jesus is alive. You have to deal with him. He's a living person. You have to deal with a living man, the man Christ Jesus. And that's the issue for you this evening. The issue for you this evening is you have to deal with a real live person. You have to deal with the Lord Jesus. I was going to say he's as alive as I am. He's more alive than I am. Because he is, lives in the power of an endless life. But he is alive. He's a real person. And you have to deal with him. You have to deal with him. You can't get away from him. That's what Paul is saying to this man. It's a glorious thing that Paul is doing here. With stakes as high as they are. When Felix could have found him guilty. Taken him out. Crucified him. Right there. And he says, no, this is about the resurrection. Because the gospel suffused everything of his, in his life. They said about John Bunyan, C.H. Spurgeon, I think it was, said about John Bunyan, if you just cut him, his blood is bibline. In other words, the word of God comes out of him. If you did the same to Paul, if you cut him, the gospel would come out. He just couldn't keep it to himself, the gospel. Here he is on defense, in defense of the gospel. But notice this too. As, as the story goes on, look at verse 25. Felix, we're told verse 23, 20, sorry, 22, that Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, that is the way of Jesus, put the people off and said, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, then I'll decide your case. He's procrastinating. He's putting things off. It's one of these things. And then in verse 24, his wife, Drusilla, Drusilla was a Jew. We know a couple of things about Drusilla. We know that Felix wanted her. She was a stunning woman, apparently, so we're told. We haven't any photographs. They didn't have any in those days. But we're told by the records that she was an absolute stunner of a woman. And, and Felix wanted her. And Felix went to her husband and paid him big money to divorce her so that he could have her. So Felix wasn't a good man. And Drusilla was now his wife. 
But Drusilla also was related to Herod, Herod Antipas, who wasn't a good man either. She didn't have a lot of genetically going for her, this woman, Priscilla, apart from looks. Uh, but she did have an interest. She did have an interest in what Paul had to say. So in verse 24, some days after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. There he is. He's rabbiting on about faith in Christ Jesus. Keeps going. He just keeps going. And as he reasoned, I want you to notice what he talks to this man about. Here he is sitting with his wife. Paul knows the background. Everybody knows the background. It's one of the great, great stories of the region. It's been in the magazines, in the, in the kind of popular press, wherever you look. There were the snapshots of Felix and Drusilla and the story. Captured the headlines. You went to the checkout in the local store there in Caesarea. And there it was, sitting ready for you to take the stories of Smutty stories about Drusilla and Felix. Everybody knew the story. So what does Paul talk to them about? Look at what Paul talks to them about. He talks to them, verse 25, about righteousness, self-control, <laughs> and the coming judgment. Like Paul, get your act together here. You know, this is, you're really pushing. You're pushing the envelope here. Like you're standing before the governor, he knows what he's done. Everybody knows what he's done. And what's Paul speaking about? He's talking about righteousness. I wonder whose righteousness he spoke about. I'm sure he talked about the unrighteousness of the world. And I'm sure he underlined the unrighteousness of the behavior of the governor. But I'm sure he talked about the righteousness of the Nazarene from Galilee, Jesus Christ. He certainly talked about the judge who had the power to, ju to, to judge the whole world before whom he stood. And he talked about self-control, the kind of self-control that Felix had not been able to show in his determination to have Drusilla for himself. In other words, what he's doing is he's engaging this guy in the very areas where the guy has been sinning against God. Now, this is a marked contrast, isn't it, with, with the whole emphasis. I mean, I... I don't know whether you have the time to do I don't have the time anymore, but I used to read some of these books that people produce all the time about how we do culturally relevant evangelism. And how we do cultural, culturally relevant evangelism is we don't say anything that will offend people who aren't Christians. We, we, we avoid doing that. So, so don't use sin. Don't use that word. That's a, that has negative connotations. I mean, those who preach that you can have your best life now would never, ever use that word. But here's Paul, you see. He's on trial for his life. And what's he talking to the governor, the judge, who could put him in prison for a long time? What's he talking to him about? Righteousness. Self-control. What righteousness looks like. Self-control, what he didn't have, and the coming judgment. In other words, Felix, I'm on trial before you. You are going to one day be on trial before King Jesus. Before King Jesus. And it's then the punchline of the story. Felix was alarmed, verse 25. 
and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Or, as the old King James Version put it, when there is some more convenient season. What's he doing? He's procrastinating. He's putting it off. You notice he's alarmed. Something of what Paul is saying is getting into his, into his brain. Something of what Paul is saying is getting over the barrier that he's put around, this protective barrier that we put around ourselves. Something is getting through to him, but he wants to stop it. He wants to stop it. I don't want any more right now. I want you out of my sight right now. I'll hear about this some other time. And I wonder whether you're doing that. I wonder if there's somebody here this evening, you're doing this. You're putting it off. There are times, there are times it seems the Word of God has gotten close to you. It's, it's got some reaction from you, from your gut. A sense, maybe this is right. Or, maybe it's got a reaction from your gut. I'm going the wrong way. Or some other reaction. And, and it's gotten to you. It's gotten to you. And what have you done? You've said, I don't want to hear any more about this. Don't want to hear any more. Not, not just now. Sometime later... Maybe sometime when I'm ready. You know, when, there'll come a time in my life when I'll be thinking seriously about spiritual things. and Maybe when I'm older and I'm about to die. You know, that's a good time to think about the things of God. The lesson of this man is don't do it. Back in 1776, there was a famous revolutionary war in these parts. And there was, a very great, there was a great battle in Trenton, in New Jersey. And the incident took place on Christmas Day, 1776, in a brilliant move where George Washington was able to take the initiative in attacking the English. And he took his troops, you remember, across the Delaware River. They crossed at three points. It was a freezing cold night. There was ice on the river. And the commander of the Hessians, these were Germans who had been hired by the English to fight for them, because the English didn't know how to fight in cold weather. And the man in charge of the Hessians was a certain Colonel Rowe. And he was playing cards that night with some of his men. He'd given instructions that he was not to be disturbed. In the middle of the playing cards, somebody came in with a note that was handed to him. He just took the note and he shoved it in his pocket. And uh, what the note was about was that George Washington's men had been seen crossing the river, but he never looked at the note. By the time the game was over, the game was over. And Colonel Rowe was found the next morning with the note unread in his pocket. In his pocket. Do you think you can come to Jesus Christ anytime you want to come? Do you think you can decide that? Do you think that's true? Do you think you can leave here tonight and say, look, I can come to Jesus some other time, later? The Bible says to you, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. You see, the Spirit was working a little bit in Felix's heart. That's why he was alarmed. And 
he resisted the Spirit and died without Christ. For two years he had Paul in prison. Two years. And he would listen to Paul from time to time. But he never reached that point again where his spirit was alarmed by the word. It never happened. It never happened for him. And if the word of God has quickened you tonight, then this is the moment that God has appointed for you to respond to him, to believe in the Lord Jesus, and to be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the Lord Jesus comes to us in different ways and at different times in our lives, and he makes his presence felt and his word clear. And if tonight there are those of us who are resisting, we pray that you would break down our resistance by the infinite power of your grace and draw us to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.